Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Ben Hassan, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Culture, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for Walmart, Inc. Thank you so much for taking time to uh, join me today, Ben. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Your, your background is really interesting. Of course, you have a bachelor's degree in computer science and MBA, and the early part of your career was clearly solidly in technology. You started with a energy company in the Dallas area. You were there for 14 years as director of information technology, but then you were at Dell for 11 years where you were VP of information technology. You came to Walmart where you've been for 13, almost 14 years, and you were uh, VP of people systems. So IT, I assume that's IT related to uh, people, right? That's right. That's right. And then, and then you were SVP of ISD, uh, information services division for strategic services. And then in 2015, you became senior vice president and chief culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion officer for Walmart. That seems like a huge change. So I would like to start out, if you wouldn't mind, by just clearly you were interested in technology, especially early in your career. Or what kind of got you interested in that going that direction? You know, Matt, it's a great question. Um, I, and I, I say this all the time. I got drafted. I was in my dream job. Um, I had spent my whole career in technology. And I literally, Matt, got a phone call from my boss, who was the chief information officer at the time. And she goes, hey, Ben, you're one of five finalists for the chief diversity officer job. <laughs> and I remember saying, Matt, how am I the finalist for a job I didn't apply for? <laughs> and she told me, well, don't worry. I told them you're not going anywhere. We got plenty to do over here. You're a technologist at heart. And don't worry about it. Well, if you've been around corporate America as long as I have, which is almost 40 years, when they tell you don't worry about it, you better worry about it. <laughs> and sure enough, 30 days later, I get a phone call from the head of HR who says, uh, you've been selected as the finalist. You need to come talk to me. And when you get done, we get done. You need to go talk to Doug McMillan, who's our CEO. And so I went and talked to um, the head of HR at the time. And, you know, she told me all the reasons why this would be a great move for me. Now, mind you, I'm thinking, you know, I've got a 900 person organization with a huge budget. And now you're asking me to take this job that maybe has 30 people in it. Um, I'm not sure this is actually a, a move forward in my career. I had all my ducks lined up on how I was going to convince Doug that I was not going to take this job. And Doug can be very convincing. And, you know, one of the things he said to me was, don't judge the worth of the job based on the size of the organization. He said at the time we had about 4,000 technologists. And he said, you've had an amazing impact over in that part of the business. He said, but I believe in this job, you'll have the opportunity to impact 2.2 million people around the world. And I remember going home, talking to the boss, my wife. She said to me, Matt, remember when you asked me to move to Bentonville from Austin? And I asked you to pull out the map and say, where is Bentonville? <laughs> and remember, you asked me to give you two years. And if things didn't work out, you know, we'd find another opportunity. 
she said, I think you'd be really good at this and give it two years. And if, if things don't work out, I'm sure they'll let you move back to technology. Well, here we are six years later. I'm still in the job. It, it has been the most incredibly rewarding, but probably the hardest job I've ever had in my whole life. Well, I would imagine your time leading shared services, IT shared services, you got to experience a global uh, situation because you were working all over the world. And I would imagine that probably helped as you moved into this new role to some degree, did it? A little. But probably what helped more was my time at Dell. One of the jobs I had at Dell toward the end of my time there, I supported the engineering function that developed new products. And so as they began to OEM or um, develop product outside of the country, I had small teams outside of the country. So they went to India first uh, in Hyderabad and Bangalore. So I had two small teams there. Then they went to Singapore. I had a small team in Singapore. They went to Xiamen, China and Shanghai, China. I had teams there. Taipei, Taiwan, I had teams there. Kuala Lumpur, I had a team there. Puerto Labor, Brazil, I had a team there. And I had a team in Austin. So looking back, not knowing that I was being prepared, the, the opportunity I had to meet people in those cultures, to understand um, you know, that we're just one human race, to understand that people all over the world want the same things for their families and their kids and their grandkids. I look back on that and think, what a wealth of opportunity that was. I mean, I traveled all over the world. I was on a plane um, you know, six months out of the year going to one of those countries amazing experiences. And so I think that actually prepared me for the work that I'm doing now. The other thing I'll say, Matt, you know, there weren't a whole lot of people who looked like me in the early 80s in the technology field. And so I had my own experiences of what it's like to be included or not included through that process. And I remember one of the promotions, my first promotion, I got the vice president at Dell, the chief diversity officer at Dell. I went in to thank him for all the hard work and helping me get to that level. He said, Ben, I don't want your thanks. He said, but one time you're gonna be in, the, in a, a position to do the same thing I just did for you, and I want you to promise me that you'll do it. And so I think all of those things have led up to me getting this opportunity at Fortune One. I feel humbled to be able to do this job at Fortune One, particularly in the day and time and the social environment that we live in today. You know, Walmart has, of course, everyone knows that they've been a leader in discount merchandising, supply chain management, efficiency, but they've also clearly been a leader in sustainability and diversity, equity, inclusion. Walmart's operating in so many different countries. I'm kind of curious about how you manage that, especially from a cultural perspective. You know, do you take a country-specific approach or the Walmart approach or some sort of balance? How does that work globally? Yeah, I'm going to mimic our CEO, Doug. We're a purpose-driven company, and our purpose is to help people save money and time so they can live better. That purpose is timeless, and everything we do is around serving customers. So the purpose stands timeless. The values of the company also stand timeless. This notion of respect for each and every individual, regardless of who they are, uh, where they live, what their ethnicity, gender, who they love. We want to respect every single individual. The second uh, value is this notion of uh, service to the customer, which ties you know, directly back to 
our purpose, service, everything with excellence, and then on this foundation of integrity. So those four pillars stand firm. The behaviors over time under those values could change. And uh, we're in the process now of redistributing the behaviors that we expect today, which were different than five years, 10 years, you know, 20 years ago. Now, when we talk about the work of DNI, we think of it in, in these terms. In the U.S., pretty clearly, inclusion is fundamental to the work. That's what the focus is. And we've really tried to shift uh, the conversation from one that's not always just about diversity, but this notion of inclusion of all people, regardless of who you are. Because many times when people hear diversity, there are some groups who think, well, they're not talking about me. You know, they're talking about women and people of color. But no, when we talk about inclusion, we're talking about everybody. And so we measure how we're doing from an inclusion standpoint and a culture standpoint annually in our annual employee survey. But we also measure representation by gender and ethnicity in the U.S. Now, outside the U.S., our model is a hub and spoke model. There are teams in every market that are focused on DNI that don't report directly to me. They meet with my team periodically for collateral and information around the work, but they don't report to me. Consistently, we're measuring gender representation around the world. So regardless of the country that you're in, we are focused on gender representation. And then we ask each country, you decide on what the plus one or plus two is for your country. So in India, many times it's the caste system, right? They are focused on opportunities across caste. In Chile, they're focused on disability. In Mexico, they're focused on disability in the LGBTQ community. So in effect, um, we give that flexibility by country uh, to actually develop their own strategies in country with gender being the primary one. And then they have the opportunity to pick the second or third thing that they want to focus on. So we call it, how do you create a framework, framework that get, creates global flexibility to allow people in country to decide what makes most sense in country? One of the things we don't want to do, and many times Americans do this, we, in, we, we overly try to influence uh, in-country um, issues when we actually don't know as much about the in-country issues as the people who live in the country. So that's the approach that we've taken, Matt, and it's, it's been pretty successful. We Literally, people are going, thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to decide what makes sense um, in-country in this work. That really makes so much sense because there's no way you could create a policy that would apply to 70 plus countries. That's great. Now, you know, the other thing I've wondered about from a culture and DEI perspective um, that may be more complicated today than it was 30 years ago, uh, but I remember so clearly when Walmart moved to China, for example, Oh, I remember the other moves as well, but China is real clear in my mind because I was involved in some of that early on. And, um, but you know, uh, I know Walmart over the years has continued to, I mean, you've been sourcing from all over the world for a long time and you also have uh, stores in, in many different parts of the world. Um, but, you know, as a, an expatriate going to another country, the expatriate has to have some sensitivity to the culture of that country. 
And um, it's hard to, I mean, part of it, you have to learn by just wanting to learn. You've got to, you go into another country and you learn, You but, but the desire has to be in the person to really uh, learn. And I think some of it comes back to what you were talking about earlier, the desire to respect and value every human being. I think the more your heart is towards valuing someone, the easier it is to adapt a little bit. But I'm wondering, do you all have processes and practices in place to help them adapt in that way? Yeah, we do. We literally, before expats head out, we have cultural sensitivity classes that are available to expats. They really get into some of the nuances that are different country by country. But one of the things that I would also add, Matt, is, and I'm a firm believer in this, because many times when you go as an expat, you're going as a change agent. But at some point, you're coming back. What I've learned in my 13 years at Walmart is the most important thing for a change agent is the questions that they ask. You actually begin to create this bond in that environment where people are like, okay, you didn't come in here just to tell us how stupid we are and how we're not doing what we should be doing. You're actually taking the time to understand why we do the things we do. There actually may be some nuances that you don't know. And so one of the things we advise people all the time is questions, questions, questions. The other thing that is a personal uh, model of mine and going into address change is this notion of diagnosis dictates treatment. And just like a doctor does diagnosis before they actually treat, when you go in into a new environment, you need to take the time to get proximate to the problem before you actually start developing solutions. And so my approach has been, and the approach we try to tell people to use, take the time to gather the devastating data, because there's a reason why you're being sent um, to address change. And then the second step is counterintuitive in a way, because all the change books tell you, then share what you found. And what I found, at least at Walmart, is when you share what you found, many times the passive aggressive behavior begins to show up, telling you why you really don't understand what you think you found. So what my second step is, after devastating data discovery, tell no one or tell just a small group of people so that you can actually begin to build a pilot of a better way forward. And then now you have the devastating data. You have the data from your pilot, which you will actually have learnings yourself in that pilot. And now you can begin to share the data and say, okay, here's how we can uh, move forward to actually make the changes that we want in order to service customers better. So you really put a lot of uh, effort into alignment, getting people aligned on these things. And that's that's a really powerful uh, message. Ben, I would love to hear a little bit about what some of your priorities are and diversity and inclusion, but also really how you address some of the discourse and dialogue that's going on um, right now. And there's 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 a really more of it than I can remember in my lifetime, uh, but really curious to hear about that. The way we're thinking about the work, and I'll get to the social discord question, it's a great question. We actually are thinking about it inside and outside of the company. And so the first thing we've recognized is that our own people practices, our own HR practices from recruitment to retirement 
how equitable are they? Are the, is there unconscious bias in that system from recruitment to retirement that leaves some people out from where we recruit, who we hire, how are people compensated, who gets the key assignments, how do people get promoted? All of those things are run by human beings. And at the end of the day, we all live with unconscious bias that's on the fast side of our brain. And all of our unconscious biases live there. And the problem with human beings is we're making decisions every day, all day long with those biases. And so how do you put bias interrupters in the system so that you can pause and make sure you think before you actually do something to that reaction? So that's you know a huge piece of the work that we're doing is examining our own internal practices. One of the other things we've learned is Transparency brings accountability. So the more transparent we can be around representation, around our inclusion metrics, around our culture metrics, the more transparent we can be year over year creates accountability for leadership. The third thing we've done is we've created these groups that we call shared value networks. And shared value is about this notion of organizations doing well while doing good in society. And so we're focused on four systems that we believe structural and institutional racism has developed over time. The education system, the healthcare system, the finance system, and the criminal justice system. And so we've set up teams to actually examine those systems. Three of those, um, we're actually in those businesses. Uh, we're in the education business, we're in the healthcare business, we're in the finance system business. So we're looking at our own practices internally, but we're also looking externally. What could we be doing from a philanthropic standpoint to address issues that might make the outcomes better from those systems for all people. We set up a Center for Racial Equity that's part of our foundation. We've committed $100 million over the next five years to address all four of those systems. And then the last big piece of our strategy has been, how do we educate people on how we have become so situated in this country? What has caused some of this divide. So we've been working with a team out of Greensboro, North Carolina. They're called the Racial Equity Institute. And they have a two-day workshop that really tracks the history of race in the United States from a standpoint of the laws that have been passed from 1619, from slavery, through Jim Crow, through civil rights, through the current laws on the books. If you can't get proximate, if you aren't willing to get proximate to the problem, then you're never going to actually solve it. And so this is one of our approaches to get proximate to the problem. Now, back to the social discord question. Here's my opinion. The far right and the far left are the loudest in the social discord today. I believe that most people live somewhere in the middle of the loudness that happens on the far right and the far left. And I think the extremes uh, continue to cause more and more discord and more and more separation. I also believe that one of the biggest lies that humanity has been fed and accepted is this separation of people by race. Biologists say that um, mosquitoes have more difference in the DNA amongst them than human beings do on the planet. Yet we spend so much time um, uh, separating when I believe society, communities, and organizations would be so much better off if we talk and spend more time on the things that we have in common than the things we have different. The one advantage that Walmart has, and, and I believe it's a huge advantage, I've spoken to about 40 different chief diversity officers since George Floyd's murder. First time chief diversity officers, many of whom it's the first time their organization has had a diversity office. 
And what ends up happening is they're like, I don't know how to make this take hold in the organization. How do I get the organization to own it and get it out of the diversity office and into the organization in a way that everyone feels accountable for it? So June of 2020, um, um, we, um, we have an annual shareholders meeting that's usually in person, down on your campus, uh, and we did it virtually. And so Doug gave a speech, and at the end of the speech, he talked about the social discord. And he said, look, we stand for equity in this company. And if you leaders don't believe you can lead that way, you need to find somewhere else to work. So we have clipped that part of the video and we've been using it since then, because at the end of the day, what we've said is in this company, in these four walls, if you're a leader, this is the way we expect you to lead. And it ties to who we are, our values, and it ties to our purpose. Very powerful. Ben, as a last question, or really request, would you mind offering some advice to our students? Yes. So I call this the three L's. And the first one takes me back to my mother. My mom was a, a mother of six, a stay-at-home mom. And she used to say to us all the time, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. And I remember I used to think, is she just telling me to shut up? And, you know, the older I got, the more I realized listening is an art. Listening is a skill. So that's the first L. Listen more. And here's one way you can test if you're really listening. Can you repeat what the person speaking to you just said? So what I heard you say was, and now I know you've listened to what I've said. You're not conjuring your rebuttal in your head while I'm talking. The second L is lead where you are, regardless of where you are on your own personal journey, specifically on this journey of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. You have the opportunity to lead exactly where you are. Um, you don't have to lead 100 people. You might be able to just lead one or two people that you encounter every day. So listen, lead where you are. And the third thing I'll say is be a lifelong learner. Now, I know you're in school. I know you want to get out. And I know you're thinking, oh, my God, when I'm done, I'm done. But be a lifelong learner. And you have the ability with technology today. You don't have to know the Dewey Decimal System like I did. You don't have to go through a bunch of dusty little draws with a hook on the front and find the card and hope somebody put the book back where it was. You actually have the ability to use a device you carry with you every day to be a lifelong learner. So carve out time, focus on the topics that are important to you, and don't ever stop learning. So listen, lead, and learning would be my final advice for the students, Matt. I think that's really great advice. You know, I've noticed that great leaders, many great leaders, adhere to those three. I think it's it's hard to learn to listen. Being able to even say, when, when you listen to someone and say, what I think I heard you say is this, to your point, yeah, it definitely makes people realize they've been heard. And, um, you know, leading where you are, I think that's a really good point of advice for our students because many students are, they're in registered student organizations or clubs or Greek life or sports, whatever it may be, there's an opportunity to lead right there. And the more you practice trying to lead, I think the better you get at it. And then being a lifelong learner, that really does take discipline. I was interviewing someone recently who's a 
senior leader in a CPG company, and he blocks two hours every morning and has for like over 30 years for reading, you know, newspapers and magazines and various things. And, you know, there's a cumulative effect to that over yeah. time. Yeah, Matt, I, I think back about this lifelong learning. I had this experience when I was at Dell and um, there was a senior leader who I saw sitting in his car every morning and he would sit in his car for 30, 40 minutes before he'd come in the building. And so finally, one day I went over and knocked on his window and he rolled his window down and he was listening to what sounded like a kid reading the Wall Street Journal. And I remember thinking, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I pay my children to read the Wall Street Journal on tape every day. And then when I get the tapes, I listen to the tapes on the way to work and in my car before I come in the office. And I was like, well, why do you do that? And he said, well, number one, because I'm creating this learning for my kids because they got to read it to tape it. They're not going to get their allowance if they don't tape it. But number two, it gives me the opportunity to actually listen to it and not have to read it myself. So um, that was his way of being a lifelong learner. I thought it was genius. These kids today, you know, they some of them may not even know what kind of tape that was. The point is, you know, there, there is a way. Uh, we can all figure out our own ways to be lifelong learners. Ben, thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation, and I wish you the best in leading Walmart's DEI and culture. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.